folks, this is Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrett, joined by Simon Foster. Folks, it is absolutely true that not all movies are born equal. Not every movie released in 2022, and we're doing our top 10 of 2022 movies this week. That's what's happening. Strap yourself in, there's a list coming. But it is true that not every movie of 2022 was called The Batman. This is not like TV only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for a movie. Hey guys, this is Screen Watching. My name is Dan. Dan Barrett. That's my name. That's a lot of, uh, I was going to do a dance. Uh, Simon Foster, you're with me as always. How are you, sir? What's going on? Well, are you excited about is... talking about your top 10 of 2022? I long for this moment, Dan Barrett. This is the one episode of the year that I get truly, truly excited about where I get to tell people my opinion on the top 10 movies of the year. I've always said everyone's entitled to my opinion, and that certainly comes true with the top 10 list. Um, I saw upwards of... Nearly 600 movies this year, according to my letterboxed account. Not all, um, not all new movies. Not all new movies, no. Some oldies um, and a lot of festival stuff through my through my festival gig that that uh, just haven't got a release anywhere. So I'm not including any of those on my on my top ten list. I've gone fairly mainstream with this with my bunch. Um, but yeah, hefty year at the movies and a troubling year at the movies as well. There's um, you know, a lot of the trends coming out of the US are that the more serious upmarket stuff um, is, isn't finding the audience it once did. To be honest, apart from Top Gun, and we discussed this in a, in a recent podcast, that only Top Gun has, has been the blockbuster of the year, the legitimate global blockbuster. Um, horror has held up its own with movies like Smile and Barbarian um, and X finding an audience or performing two or above projections. But the serious stuff... You know, there was some, there's been some major bombs this year with with Bros and Amsterdam and Bones and all sort of dying a terrible death at the movies and even sort of really well reviewed films, Oscar contenders like The Fablemans or or, or, or um, Tar, the the Kate Blanchett film, underperforming in, in limited release. So people are still sort of coming back to the cinemas, but not in the droves we hope they would. Yeah, I mean, they're coming back to the cinemas, but not in the way they were. I think is probably yeah, and also, I mean. When we say not in the way they were, I think this has been a bit of an ongoing trend for a little while where we are seeing back in the 70s, 80s and 90s, I think there was sort of a um, cultural imperative to go and see the more sort of art, intellectual, sort of artistically ambitious movies. But I do think that as streaming is taking more of a place in people's entertainment diet, that there's just less mm. of an impetus to necessarily go and see those movies to make that effort to get along and the cinema experience becomes so much more about that big screen and the amazing sound and experience of an event rather than of intellectual or cultural um, stimulation. I think we're only just starting to see now the impact that the pandemic had on viewing uh, habits. Um, People were trained and given the opportunity to see certain types of movies in their living room. People upgraded a lot of their equipment in their homes to, to um, compensate for not being able to go to the movies. Um, and now Hollywood is kind of paying a price for that, kind of having to double back on, on um, you know, try to, to try to get the audiences back, and that, that's proving tougher. Um, 
tougher than they imagined. But there's, I found 10 really good movies this year that we're going to discuss in a minute. Yeah, so my experience this year, so I don't see the depth of movies that Simon does. I've got TV to watch and also a life that I want to live. Like, you know, there's there's certain other trade-offs they have to make around the place. So my main- I know, I know of other life. I don't understand it entirely, but yes, I understand like, there's what, other life. What is, what is the runtime of other life? Like, where was that playing? I didn't catch that one. Okay. Sometimes I don't like the rating. So my movie going traditionally is uh, certainly a lot more commercial and mainstream than Simon's, just in that he is seeing a lot more film festival content. He's seeing, he's really doing the deep dives and seeing multiple movies a week, if not sometimes two to three films a day. And I know that's true because I've seen his Letterboxd account. He watches a lot of movies. I do watch an awful lot of films. Me, I'm someone who most weeks, uh, traditionally, not this year, traditionally would go and see a movie every week. So certainly the last five or six years, and I can sort of track this a little bit easier, sort of living in Sydney where uh, a lot of my social circle weren't necessarily like, you know, I had a social circle, but it wasn't really as sort of um, in each other's pockets as much as I had been previously with some friends I've got here in Brisbane. But when I was in Sydney, I certainly saw a movie every week. I'd go on a Saturday morning and I'd see a film. Sometimes I'd see two films, you know, I suddenly saw a fair bit. So I'd see what was playing in your major cinemas around the place. So like your event cinemas, mm. so your big commercial stuff. But, you know, I'd stop by the Palace. I'd stop by Den. Actually, no, I'd never go to Dendi because in Sydney, it was Dendi Newtown and that's the worst cinema in the history of cinemas. Uh, but I'd regularly go, uh, Randwick Ritz was somewhere you'd find me quite regularly or the Orpheum. Um, so like sure. I'd certainly see a mix of new releases of some retro screenings every so often, but I'd see a movie every week this year. Uh, I've made a move, um, in a state where I don't have access to good retro cinema, um, houses like the Randwick Ritz or the Orpheum. So that part of my mm -hmm. film diets disappeared. Okay. On top of that, I've got a little one, which means that it's a bit harder to get out and see a movie every week in the way that I was. I can just say, sorry, sure. dogs, I'm out of here. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about my dogs. Uh, like my wife is a person who I don't necessarily need to say I'm out of here. I can uh, just say, hey, look, exactly. sorry, darling, I'm leaving the house. Um, so that conversation was fine. Don't read too much into what I just said then. But uh, this year, like not only do I not have access to those retro screenings, but I just kind of feel that even though like I managed to make it through the pandemic era of the last two years, there just seems to be so much less content around. Like there's some big marquee content. I saw your Top Guns. I saw one of the other big hit films of the year that you neglect to acknowledge exists called The Batman, which did mm -hmm. overperform what they expected. So, you know, that is considered a big blockbuster hit of the year. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they are far and few between. And really, this has been a year of, like, I've maybe seen a movie every month at the cinema. I've supplemented a bit more with a few streaming titles. But as I yeah. come to write a top 10 list, I genuinely couldn't think of 10 movies that deserve to be on the list. And I'm going to have at least two titles in my top 10 list that I'm reading, which is actually a top eight list because I could not reach 10 titles. <laughs> okay. Got a top eight list, and there's certainly one or two of those that I don't think would make my list in any other year. But this year, as I was scratching around for things that I thought were better than the other things I saw, like that's mm. just kind of where I'm at. So, like my, I don't have a top ten list this year, is where I'm really getting to. Okay, all right. Well, I'm I'm going to kick off with with a number ten, and I've I've worked through a mix of theatrical titles, both big and small, streaming releases, some overseas stuff, a couple of docos in there. So I'm going to work through one that no one will have heard of, but that I had to put in there because it's going to be a big deal coming up. In, um, But let's let's go into it. I'm going to jump into number 10 with a film that 
had a lot more attention off screen uh, for the uh, snarling, uh, bitter uh, onset feuds that the cast and crew had with each other. Um, but I think turned into one of the more interesting Hollywood films of the year. And it's Olivia Wilde's Don't Worry Darling. With all of you wives, we men, we ask a lot. We ask for strength, <laughs> food at home, a house clean, and discretion above all else. Boys and their toys, at least we know they're getting work done. Welcome to the Victory Project. We're all here because we believe in the mission. What are we doing? Changing, Changing the, world. the world. What are we doing? Changing, Changing the, the world. world. That's right. What do you think they're really doing out there? The look and the feel of the film was extraordinary. The recreation of the the sort of 50 setting was was pretty spectacular. Um, Pew was great in the lead role. Uh, if it went a little bit sort of oddly ambiguous and not quite sure how the ending played out, that was kind of part of its charm and part of its um, allure for me. Uh, I just thought this was this was a, a really sort of deep, dark sort of Truman Show meets Stepford Step, Wives kind of movie and um, it hit all the right buttons for a big screen film for me. I'm sorry that it got taken over by all the off-screen drama because I think there was enough going on screen to to get people talking about it. I think this is the sort of movie that would have played very well in years gone by, but I don't think that if you removed all the conversation around this movie that certainly had nothing to do with the movie itself, I think this would have been a film that got released in cinemas that nobody really paid attention to and it just vanished. I just think that's the way the conversation works these days is, you know, that's not necessarily a positive thing by any means as far as I'm concerned, but I just don't know the conversation would be there if it wasn't for Harry Styles spitting on Chris Pine at the, sorry, that never happened. Apparently that never, never happened. happened never happened. Yeah. No, I mean, they were in, where were they? Berlin or Venice? I mean, that's a very sort of Venice thing to do really. That's uh, I think you'll find it was the red carpet at Cannes, Simon. Jesus. Oh, wasn't okay. But anyway, oh. let's get away from those, um, you know, foul, uncouth um, Hollywood actors and instead, I'll say this is on my list as well. So I had this at number six on my list. Um, I agree with everything you said there. I'm a bit more pro the final um, sequence of that movie than I think you were. I think you were maybe slightly put off by... I, I don't think you were put off, but I don't think you were as um, hyper-enthused by the ending as I was. Like, I, I just I think just, it was yeah, such I, a, like, I thought it was such a creatively bold shift at the end. Oh, yeah. But where I think the movie falls apart a little bit is there's a slight, um, we'll say about five minutes, and it kind of, I think, is probably best captured. There's a sequence where it's a dinner party that's taking place mm. right before the sort of real shift in the film takes place. And I don't think the execution of that scene necessarily works as it should. Like, I just kind of found that to be just all the energy from the film up until that point just kind of vanished. Everything that was kind of a bit weird and strange and just a little bit off kilter about everything we were watching, which you understand why that literal, vibe was yeah. there. But suddenly it's just like all the cards are on the table and there was supposed to be sort of a awkward tension amongst those at the dinner party with those that don't understand what's going on. And then the Chris Pine and Olivia Wilde characters at either end of this table, both sort of mm -hmm. gaming it out against each other. And the sequence just didn't work. Like it was a terribly realized bit of cinema. And the unfortunate thing is that I think so much of the film hinged on that scene. So that, for me, that's kind of where the film really stumbled badly. And then they bring in a bit of a twist to it. And I think it salvaged, uh, like it saved the film, but there was, it shouldn't have needed to be salvaged at that stage. 
That's Don't Worry Darling, which is, I think, available on all streaming platforms as we speak to catch up with that one. Now, my I number like streaming nine platforms for- to buy, not necessarily, so just watch. To watch, exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, my number nine film also got headlines for stuff that happened um, outside of the film itself. It was a movie that opened to absolutely dire box office coming off the back of um, some really great reviews. Uh, but the movie She Said, starring Zoe Kazan and Carrie Mulligan and Patricia Clarkson, um, the story of the the two journalists who sort of um, forged a path for the Me Too movement, um, I thought was a brilliant bit of adult storytelling, uh, growing up storytelling, and, and captured a moment in modern history that, that was absolutely worth documenting and that large sections of it hadn't been um, exposed to the public in the uh, in the flurry of excitement and, and and social upheaval that the Me Too movement came uh, came with um, at 129 minutes. I think it ran a little long, but I also think it featured two great performances from Kazan and Mulligan, um, and it was the sort of uh, mature storytelling that we kind of crave for and would have been a huge deal in the cinemas um, in decades past, but um, had a real, real trouble finding an audience this year. So, uh, But it made it onto my top ten list with, um, I thought it might have been higher than nine, but uh, I shuffled around a bit in the final in the final mix. So at number nine is She Said. Yeah. Uh, again, my enthusiasm for it is not particularly high because I just kind of think that this is a film that came out too soon after a lot of reporting around the subject matter. Like, I just couldn't find a reason why I'd be that interested in seeing yet another take on the story. We shall roll into my number eight. Uh, now, this was a movie that came out through the Sundance uh, Film Festival um, and is the romantic comedy of the year. It's called Cha-Cha Real Smooth. It's fine. It's so cute. It's so good. No, Mom, if anybody sees that, I'm going to get put on a watch list. I can't believe college is over. You have a job now? Or? We're not allowed to talk about jobs at the Batman's party. So you either don't have a job or you have a bad job. How much does a party starter get paid, I wonder? I have a bad job. This one uh, was written and directed by and starred a young uh, comedic actor called Cooper Rafe, who I've had never heard of. Apparently he'd had a couple of sort of small indie hits or indie you know, features along the way, but this was his big role of the Sundance Dice. It featured Dakota Johnson as well, who, uh, as I think I've mentioned before, I've spinned around 180% on in terms of her film output. She makes some really fun and interesting films at the moment and she's lovely in them. It's very much a uh, meet cute romance, but let's just be friends in the end, sort of romantic comedy, um, but so full of charm and so full of some funny and awkward moments that it was ca- it really recaptures what the great sort of romantic comedies of the 80s and 90s. And going back even further, there's a real sort of um, um, Tracy and Hepburn kind of spin on this. I know that's a big call, but it's a, it's a lovely, lovely film. And it's, it ultimately came to Apple TV um, out of the out of the, its Sundance acquisition, and it's well worth seeking out. It's one of the best things on that platform. Yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about this one, and I kind of feel that I've missed out on something by not having caught up with it yet. So it's on my list for over Christmas of... Yeah, you want to drop one in here? You got one yeah. you can add I, to the mix? Yeah, I finally reached a point where I can join the list. Okay, so number eight for me, and certainly not a film that would have made my list in any other year, but as I expressed, you know, this is kind of where we're at. Uh, I want to talk about the film that went straight to Paramount Plus here in Australia. It's called Significant Other. Before I knew you, I didn't really know what I wanted in life. 
And then I met you and I feel like I'm going somewhere. And I don't even know where, but I just know I want to go there with you. You ready to tell us what happened to you? Uh, interesting. Now, people may remember this one as the one I discussed, what, like about two or three months ago on the podcast. Now, this was uh, more or less a two-hander starring Jake Lacey and Macon Munro. The two of them play a couple that have been together for a couple of years at this stage. Uh, there'd been a discussion amongst the two of them, particularly from the woman. She wasn't interested in getting married at any point. Not to him, not to anybody. Uh, he obviously felt a little bit different because he ends up proposing to her while they go on this hike through the Pacific Northwest um, forests. So it's like this really lush series of forests. And I knew nothing about this movie going into it. And for all intents and purposes, I thought it was just going to be a relationship drama uh, with possibly Jake Lacey as he's Jake Lacey, maybe proving to be that he's a bit of a creepy guy. Uh, that's where I, where I thought the film was going and everything is set up in the film to kind of go down that path. And then suddenly something else happens and it goes an oh, entirely yeah. different path. Uh, look, this is a film that... We discussed this a couple of times. There's a few twists and turns in the way the story is unraveled. It's about three or four films in one. And I found each of those films to be a film that I'd be very much there to see. And as a combined package, like, you know, I had a lot of fun watching this one. It's something that I wish more people had seen because I think people would have generally gotten a kick out of it. I think it's more of a crowd pleaser than people would have really anticipated from pressing play. Uh, look, I think it's a fun film. Not really a top 10 worthy film, but certainly one of the few films I saw this year that I had a really great time with. Oh, totally agree. Look, it was a film that you put me onto, which was a surprise because all my all my sort of hashtags and algorithms are geared towards, you know, without giving too much away, but the science fiction or the horror or those sort of things. Um and this should have turned up. And then after you mentioned it, suddenly my Facebook feed and my Twitter feed sort of filled up with people saying, oh, I love Significant Other. And it became the real sort of um, cause celebre uh, for about a week or so there. Um, I'm not sure it was a week. I think it was like maybe four days. <laughs> might have been four days. Yes, it could have been half an hour. But um, I'm glad people ultimately found If you haven't ultimately found it, it's great summertime viewing here in Australia. It's called Significant Other on the Paramount Plus Network. My number Sorry, seven. Simon, I just realised. Yeah. Sorry, just because of the way that this is a shonky list with me not having 10 titles. Yes. If, if we keep on going 1-1, one, one, you are going to be saying you're number one and then I'm going to reveal my number one. You're the film guy. Yeah. You should be going number one. So at All this right. stage, can I just interrupt the list and do two back to back? Of course. And then that sets us on the right path going forward. Sounds good. Yeah. Do it. Sorry. And you can edit all this together properly. No, no, no edits. No edits, Simon. <laughs> You'll be editing. <laughs> no, that bit's staying right in. People need to know how the sausage is made. Simon, my number seven is Banshees of Insurance. Sonny Larry. In June, he used to be the best of friends. We're still the best of friends. No, you're not. Who says we're not? Sit somewhere else. Now, if I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. When you didn't do anything to me, I just don't like you no more. Now, I don't think you've seen this movie yet. Is that right, Simon? No, that's exactly right. As we, as we record this... Um, there's certainly been opportunity to screen it, but I just haven't been able to um, sort of make it work on my calendar. But the buzz on it is through the roof. And like I say, as we record this, it's already featuring heavily in the awards season talk with a whole bunch of nominations from a whole bunch of groups. So I'm keen to hear your spin on it. Yeah, you'll hear this one in a lot of top 10 lists this year, I'm pretty sure. Um, so you've probably already heard it in a lot of top 10 lists. Uh, this is very much a two-hander. It's Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. The two of them, they've been in a relationship for a while. They decide to go walk, hiking in the... No, that's not what happens. 
No, these you're getting your, the seven movies you watched this year. You're getting mixed up. That's great. Okay, so these are the film set in 1923. Although the the actual era is not really so important as much as the fact that you've got a small community of people living on a very remote island in Ireland, like it's an island in Ireland, off the coast of mm-hmm. Ireland, I guess. Uh, basically, everyone there, as I said, very small community. People are sheep farmers. They've got some goats. Maybe there's a local pub that they all go and spend way too much time at because it's the only thing to do. Okay. Like literally there is very few people living on this island and they're all in each other's pockets to a certain degree. Like everyone knows everybody because they all meet at the pub. And so- it sounds very Irish so far. Very Irish. And so the reason why I keep on banging on about that is just purely because if you've got a friend, that friend suddenly becomes your friend for life. You see that person every day. You spend hours with that person every day. And that is the most meaningful part of your existence, particularly if you're like the Colin Farrell character who's living in a house with his sister. The two of them are obviously, you know, Colin Farrell aged. So, you know, and they're sort of mid forties, if not a bit older. Um, They suddenly feel the pressing, uh, the pressing sort of status of uh, depression and loneliness and uh, just not having enough people to couple up with. Like it's, the brother and sure. sister are living there, obviously in separate beds. I don't want to say there's some sort of, you know, awkward thing happening in this relationship. <laughs> but like they're just living in this small house together with a donkey that he's more than happy to allow to come into the house because it's his friend. Uh, but, you know, the sister Siobhan doesn't want that happening at all. So that's the tension happening in their household. But for him, for this guy, and look, I'm not great with Irish names. I'm of Irish heritage. I should be better at this than I am. Okay. Regular listeners to the podcast will know you, that you struggle somewhat with uh, international yeah, international monikers. Absolutely, <laughs> and the my people, the Irish, I struggle with them more than anything else. Okay, so I'm going to say <laughs> that his name is pronounced uh, Padraig. Okay, but oh, I'm yes. not sure that's yeah. right. There's it's it's there's a lot of Gaelic happening here. But anyway, this guy, the Colin Farrell guy, his best friend is Colm, played by Brendan Gleeson. He goes to Colm's house to say, "Hey, mate, you know we're going to go to the pub." Okay, and he knocks on the door and Colm's sitting in there. You can see him through the window, but he is not answering the door. So anyway, he knocks on the door and like he's, you know, shouts out and says, well, you know, I'm just going up to the pub. And then, you know, while he's sort of wandering around the house trying to see what's happening with his mate Colm, Colm gets up and leaves and goes to the pub. So Patrick, he goes walking up to the pub and is like, Colm, like what's going on? And Colm's like, sit somewhere else. I don't want you to sit with me. And so the whole thing is, Colm's had like a bit of a, we'll call it a ladder life crisis of sorts. And he's realized he's wasting his entire life by just hanging around with Podrick, who's a very dull man. Okay. He feels that he should be spending his time. <laughs> right, don't writing, give too much away. No, but this don't is like the first like 10, 15 minutes. He's All there right. thinking, I should be writing songs. I should be doing more with my life. Okay. And like, you can't do more with your life on this island than what he's doing at the moment. But he feels he should be doing more and be more intellectually stimulated than hanging out with this guy, Padraig. And so what this film is about is you live a life where nothing is going on and the one person you can depend on, the one person who is like your foundational figure in life suddenly wants nothing to do with you for a reason which is thoroughly irrational. Okay, Mm. like what does that do to you as a person? And so how does that make you sort of act out, particularly we're an incredibly dull person who's got very little going on in his life like Patrick does. And so this is the conceit of this really great Martin McDonough movie. Uh, Like, I don't think it's an amazing film. I think it's been overhyped a little bit, but it is a very interesting, charming film that certainly has a couple of moments in there which will take you areas you didn't really expect when you started watching the movie, but also fits completely in the context of what is a very small 
down, intimately focused film. And there can be no uh, overvaluing the chemistry and the on-screen partnership that Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson have in oh, anything they do. Sorry, um, I'd like to say, I don't think they've got any chemistry in this movie, but intentionally. Oh, exactly right. So, so and in and using the words of, of Martin McDonough, who writes some great, great films and, and, and has a wonderful way with the, the native tongue, um, this looks to be a film that I'm going to absolutely fall in love with. It's a very um, complex and interesting trailer for the film, so I'm keen to see how the film plays out. It's in cinemas all around Australia on Boxing Day or, or Christmas Day um, and is already happening or in other parts of the world. So, um Good one. Caught up on that one ahead of me. Good on you, mate. That sounds like a really interesting film. Can I just give a quote from Martin McDonough in an interview he gave with The Guardian? And this gives you an idea as to what this film is like. If you want a vibe idea, the quote is this. No one really tries to make sad movies anymore. (laughs) There's your poster quote. That's good. That's it. So run along and see it immediately. But yeah, so that's Banshees of Insurance. And in Australia, that's being released on Boxing Day in cinemas. My number seven My is, number a, little seven is a little French film called, film called The Night of the Twelfth. Or La Nuit. I don't know how to say Twelfth. How to say Twelfth. It's grave. 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 It's mystery investigation into um, this really complex character study of uh, the unit of policemen who were trying to um, find the killer of a young woman who on the way home from a party at night was doused with fuel and set alight in a terrible, terrible scene which starts the film. Um, And it really is less about the uh, murder mystery and it's no spoiler alert to say that this goes unsolved because the film is not so much about trying to catch the killer but more about the tensions and the um, exposing of uh, insecurities amongst the police force as they, as they try to make this happen and also deal with, I guess, in, in sort of Banshees of Insurance style, another small community who has no sort of... Um, uh, insight into the, the these terrible acts or the psychology behind them. Um, but uh, as the police, young police chief who's sort of second day on the job finds this to be his major investigation and the one that haunts him forever, an actor called Bastien Bouillon is just amazing in the lead role. Um, tough film, hard film to watch and just a really gripping sort of character study. Uh, the Night of the Twelfth uh, sort of whipped through cinemas pretty quickly. Look for this one as it hits sort of home viewing platforms in the new year, I think is the best way to see it. The night of the 12th or La Nuit du 12th, as they say in France. They sure do. I wouldn't. (laughs) I know. What's your number six? (laughs) Number six is a film, which again, I'd like to stress would absolutely be on my top 10 list. And that's certainly going to be the case for the films coming through at this point. It would be on my list regardless of year, I think. Uh, It's a horror movie, not usually my genre, but horror movie called Barbarian. Yeah. This is 476 Barbary, right? Yeah, I'm renting this place. No, I booked it a month ago. Are you sure you have the right place? Yeah. What am I supposed to do? Why don't you come inside and we'll call these idiots. So look, suddenly as I mentioned that Barbarian's on my list and I look at the other films that I've kind of already talked about at the moment, I've got a lot of films on here which are multiple films in one. 
So Don't Worry Darling kind of has a little bit of a twist in there. It's sort of, you know, there's a sure. few films happening in that one. Certainly the case is significant other. And at no way is it like more apparent than in Barbarian, where this really is yeah. three films taking place into one. Barbarian, it's a horror film. Uh, I think enough people saw this one for it to at least be on people's radars of things that they should have seen. Uh, the premise of it is that there's a woman. She's uh, come to an Airbnb. She's currently staying in Detroit for a job interview. Uh, but she's turned up in a very sort of windy, rain-swept night in the middle of the night. Knocked, uh, like, come to her Airbnb. There's no key. Like, she can't find the key. It's already been taken from the little um, box that you find in some Airbnbs. She Airbnb nightmare. Yeah. So, it's, like, late at night. She's like, what do I even do now? So, she's, like, calling the, like, real estate agent who was sort of looking after the booking for it. And, you know, there's nothing you could do there. Uh, they're not answering the phone. Uh, and then suddenly the door opens and there's a guy who's already taken the Airbnb booking from her. So the tension- Pennywise himself, Bill Skarsgård, I mean, that's yeah. not a good sign. But Bill Skarsgård without the Pennywise makeup, very handsome young man. Good looking guy. Good yeah. looking guy. I mean, if you're into that kind of thing. <clears throat> not that there's anything wrong with that. No, exactly, yeah. Um, so anyway, like the tension of the movie is, is this guy what he claims to be? Because it's a bit of a creepy situation and, you know, that's really heightened through the art of filmmaking, Simon. Um, sure. But anyway, he seems to be like a really lovely, genuine person. But at the same time, like she can't trust him. He's some weird guy that's in a house. And she ends up staying in the house overnight, like locked room. And, you know, it's a restless night. Uh, but she goes through that and then comes back the next day only to find that something happens the next day that suddenly dovetails the rest of the film. Don't want to say Yeah, that you don't want to give, so don't want to give anything this, beyond there. But anyway, this didn't so- do it. This didn't do as big here in Australia as it did overseas. It was a major hit in the US, and and um, I think there's still a lot of a lot of goodness in this film for people to discover. So it's important we don't give too yeah. much away the structure. But you've, you've got this great performance um, as like great performance in the lead from Georgina Campbell, who I was very unfamiliar with her before this film. But certainly next time that she's in something that I've got a you know likelihood of seeing, I'll be checking that one out. Uh, she was in Suspicion apparently, but that show was just awful. Yeah, sorry, I, I just had a it. flashback to that film. Um, yeah, so apparently I was well familiar with her because I'd seen her in multiple episodes of Suspicion. <laughs> yeah, not a great show. <laughs> uh, so she's in that. You've got Bill Skarsgård, who I think just does amazing work in that. Uh, you know, he's there to be as lovely and charming as possible, but at the same time, you cannot trust that guy like within yep. an inch of his life. It's a, cle- it's a clever bit of casting because he brings with him a lot of baggage as Pennywise. Um Oh, see, I didn't, and, really, and, I didn't realize who it was, so I had none of that baggage going through. Like it was, oh, okay. I enjoyed go. it purely on strength of performance alone. Now, yeah. to talk about what a great movie this is, I enjoyed this so much, even though the second version of this film, of sorts, um, stars Justin Long, who's maybe one of the worst screen presences that the screen's ever offered. Oh, no, I think he's a lot of fun. He no, had a that, couple of horror movies this year. That guy's hot garbage. Don't care for him. But anyway, <laughs> Simon, that's my number um, six on the list, Barbarian. Yeah, good one. Um, it didn't quite make my top ten, but it's in a list of really great horror films this year that that slotted into my my next best ten. So, um, and I'll be publishing that on my Screen Space page. So you can head over there and have a look in the, in the the days ahead. Uh, my number six is a little documentary from a guy called Alexander Philippe. It's called Lynch Oz. David has gone over the rainbow from the very first film ever. He lives in a different reality than you or I do. And that's quite obvious. This is a study of director David Lynch and his obsession with The Wizard of Oz and how it has infused pretty much every movie he's ever made. Most obviously, I guess, Wild at Heart, the Laura Dern, Nicolas Cage film, which had 
which was just basically a, a, a retelling of sorts of The Wizard of Oz, but also so many other aspects of what David Lynch does. Um, Alexander Philippe does these uh, great sort of deep dives into uh, film theory, and he makes them really entertaining. He did the uh, Psycho documentary a few years back called, oh, I've got to get the numbers right, I think it's 5842 or something like that, um, about the the number of shots in the shower sequence and why it's one of the most brilliant bits of cinema ever. Um, and he's also done some other stuff that is fascinating for us film buffs to watch. With Lynch Oz, he crosses that bridge over into, yes, sort of profiling an amazing director and sort of making all film nerds like me love what he does, but also making it this hugely entertaining film and reminding us all what a, a wonderful piece of filmmaking The Wizard of Oz was and why it should influence one of the most idiosyncratic and strangest directors of the last 50 years in America. Um, they, he gets a lot of other filmmakers uh, like Karen Kusama, Justin Benson, Rodney Asher um, to talk about Lynch and The Wizard of Oz. And uh, it just was for me the the best sort of documentary of the year about film filmmaking and, and uh, why I love what I love. So it's called Lynch Oz. Um, played the film festival circuit. I'm not even sure if it had a commercial release anywhere, but um, is available to see on quite a few of the streaming platforms in the new year. All right. Well, my number five is the film that really sort of emerged as the breakout indie hit of the year. Um, and I love this, and I know that you love this too. It's called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. This is Wang. Mrs. Wang, are you with us? I am paying attention. Now, you may only see a pile of receipts, but I see a story. I can see where this story is going. It does not look good. Okay, so Simon, this is on my list as well, and I have this here as my number three film. Wonderful. Okay, so a lot has already been said about this, the, the complexity of the storytelling, but the real light touch that the two directors, Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, bring to the film. Um, Michelle Yeoh's amazing transformative lead performance where she goes through four or five different types of characters in the, the space of the film, the re-emergence of Ki Hu Kwan as an actor. Um, all us kids of the 80s know him as the the little boy from Temple of Doom and, and uh, Goonies, but he's grown into this terrific supporting actor who's already getting a lot of Oscar buzz um, for his performance here and a great Jamie Lee Curtis in a, a, a terrific against type role. So this was the movie that cost next to nothing to make, ended up topping out about $80 million at the US box office and doing well all over the world. This is the real sort of the indie success story that we like to talk about um, when we talk about films finding an audience. Uh, beautifully written, terrific direction. Uh, it's just dazzling to watch in, as, as this mystery unfolds. Um, Everything Everywhere all, all at Once is the sort of film that people who don't normally see this sort of film should see because it just is hugely, hugely entertaining. Yeah, look, I was gaga for this one. So I went and saw it, didn't know anything about the film going in. I knew it had some sort of multiverse thing and I'm pretty tired of multiverses. Like really, I'm done with it. I've read them in comics for years and years of my life. And now suddenly every big action like movie has some sort of multiverse aspect to it. And yeah. it's like enough, I'm done with it. I don't care. But 
sat down with this one, hugely inventive. Uh, the sausage fingers will like live in my memory and dreams <laughs> for, you know, decades to come. <laughs> I've wanted to go back and rewatch it, but I'm a bit hesitant to do it because either I'm going to watch it and just fall absolutely in love with it, or I'm going to watch it and just find it just a little bit of a chore to get through because it has that really extended running time. And I know that when I was sitting in a cinema, just strapped to my chair going through it, like it was such a propulsive, fun experience, but I don't know that's going to translate necessarily to an experience where I've got the distractions of the home environment. So I'm a bit nervous about going back and rewatching it, but right now in my memory, my God, magnificent. That raises an interesting point because having to watch so many movies from a festival gig and, and to review and those sort of things, I've gotten out of my system going back to movies twice. I never saw any movie twice this year, not even Top Gun Maverick. I just saw it the once at the movies. Um, and, and I have a shelf full of DVDs and Blu-rays and 4Ks of my favourite movies, some of which I've bought on five or six different formats. Um, and I realise now that I'm not really watching films other than like this core maybe five or six movies like Aliens, like Untouchables, like The Fly, Um I, I just don't go back and watch movies twice. And I'm wondering if if, if that's a good thing. Um, okay. So- yeah, but I, I see, see, there's such a sense of discovery about everything everywhere that I to not have that element to sort of know what's coming, um, that can be a good thing. I mean, then you can have something like The Usual Suspects where you can sort of look at the clues and pick up along the way that this is the story they're telling and it becomes a different experience. I just don't know if I'd have the same sort of, um, exalted experience like I had with everything everywhere all at once first uh, first time viewing. I mean, this has been quite the revelatory podcast. I mean, I've heard you speaking and effectively what I just heard you say was that movies aren't worth seeing a second time and that physical media really was the point. Yes, I thought that's exactly what I thought you'd hear, yeah. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, look, yeah, I mean, I totally get that. Uh, I really enjoy the experience of rewatching films and it's pretty rare that I do it sort of, you know, too soon after seeing the film initially. But yeah, maybe that's it. There is something great about coming back and rediscovering a film a couple of years later and, you know, possibly that becoming something which then gets onto like a mini rotation of sorts. Sure. But yeah, sure. I wouldn't say there's a lot of films I rewatch, although there is a film in my list that I've seen plenty of times this year. Yeah, I was going to say, this is not a good argument for you. <laughs> um <laughs> Next on my list uh, is a film that I actually did watch a couple of times. It was released onto streaming here in Australia. Uh, it's a film called Kimmy. Sorry, Steven Soderbergh's Kimmy. Kimmy, I'm here. Call oh, Dr. Burns. I got her. What do you want from me? Kimmy? Simon, Kimmy, uh, look, obviously, I think both of us came to this sort of fairly enthused about the idea of a new Steven Soderbergh film. More than happy to check it out. What I liked about this, it was very much that Steven Soderbergh is uh, the filmmaker of movies like Side Effects or um, Unsane. So those sort of... No, no. So the version of Soderbergh that I think I really like is the one that just makes these fairly disposable potboiler thrillers. And just, like, push them out, gets a little bit inventive behind the camera, has a small enough budget where he can kind of do whatever he wants with it, and then just pushes it out. Like, there is no weight of expectation on any of these movies whatsoever. And Mm. I always find myself just walking away, just having a great time with them, because it's like you don't walk walk in thinking, oh, this is going to be a great film or a bad film, but, you know, either come to it or you don't. And it's Soderbergh, so I just find myself coming to My Soderbergh preference is some of the the more cinematic stuff. I see stuff like... um, 
the, with the George Clooney, Jennifer Lopez thing. What was that called? It's out, called of- out of Sight, which is one of my favourite yeah. films of all time. Like, that is an yeah, all-timer exactly. for me. But at the same time, when I see Soderbergh's name on there, I'm not hoping for an Out of Sight. I'm not hoping something which has, like, the huge weight of Hollywood stars on it. I'm hoping for something which is just a little bit sort of lightweight and... If I don't enjoy it, then I don't enjoy it. Like there was the film he had last year, which was the film in Detroit talking about the car industry. And I can't think of the name of the picture. It might even be early this year. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what even was the name of that film? But again, like that was a film that came out and I have very little expectation of it. And some people really like that film and I just didn't really quite, you know, takes with all that much, but like, that's fine. It just means that, 12 months from now, there's going to be another Soderbergh film because, boy, that guy knows how to churn him out. And there's a good well, chance it'll Kimmy, become one of my favourites or it won't, and that's fine. I think Kimmy was arguably the best and most inventive use of sort of the lockdown aesthetic that, that he was um, a whole lot of movies tried to do these one apartment type things. Um, Anne Hathaway and George David Washington, John David Washington tried to make one a couple of years ago and it was terrible. And, and, but I think with Kimmy, he, he does it and does it really, really well. So I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad you bring Kimmy to the floor. I forgot that was this year. I thought that was last year, but no, you're right. Kimmy's a terrific film. Early this year. And the film I was thinking it was no sudden move. So, Kimmy, for those who don't know, it's about a woman who works for a Google-type company. She monitors the audio recordings from, like, Alexa recordings that haven't fa- that have failed. And so, got to work out what was, you know, what went bad about the interaction and then, you know, suggest the software update to, you know, do that. But anyway, she ends up hearing a murder take place. And so, it's about her trying to report it to the company and... Uh, goes a little bit awry when suddenly hitmen turn up to take her out. But anyway, hey. really fun, vibrant, just, you know, over-the-top action film. Uh, Zoe Kravitz in the lead role with, like, this is probably my favourite Zoe Kravitz performance this year. That isn't the other one I'm going to talk about in a short while. <laughs> We're building up to something here, folks. You can feel it in the air. <laughs> All right, I'm going to weigh in with my number four film. Uh, it was the blockbuster film event of the year or the other one if you believe dan barrett it's called top gun maverick it uh, stars a certain young actor called tom cruise who's got big things ahead of him your instructor is one of the finest pilots this program has ever produced His exploits are legendary. What he has to teach you may very well mean the difference between life and death. Uh, we were taken to a whole nother cinematic world with Top Gun Maverick, although it very clearly and very effectively echoes the the feeling of the first Top Gun from all those years ago. I think this is about as good a reworking, relaunching of a of a property as Hollywood can do. Um, Cruz showed not only that he's still the the great international movie star, arguably the only one left in the world, but he's able to embrace the fact that he's aging and that the uh, the fighter pilot hotshot that he once was is is many many years in the rear view mirror. Um, and he played a, a great reworking of the character to the point that I started to think, how am I going to see this older man Tom Cruise 
when the next couple of Mission Impossible films come out because I I really love seeing Cruz age into the Maverick role um, and work opposite people like Miles Teller in, as the as the young um, pilots that he was put in charge of teaching. So on top of all of that, of course, the aerial sequences and the flight sequences were were just um, exhilarating to watch in a way that uh, really rewarded going out to the movies to see this film. So um, Top Gun Maverick was easily a, a top five film for me from the year yeah um it's a bit of a hard sort of thing about tom cruise as a old man version of it because he's very much young in so many ways throughout this film from his physical capabilities to i mean that's really all that's on display here uh like the only thing that sort of really indicates that he's an older man is that he does have a history and a past which you know is on display to a certain uh series of yeah still troubles him in but yeah i wouldn't necessarily call him an old man rather he's just kind of a uh, proto male with a lot of runs on the board yeah yeah he's only a couple of years older than me it's not the years baby it's the mileage as they say so i mean if he looks as good as you when he reaches your age simon Thank you, Dan. Yeah. I appreciate that. I am a good-looking guy. Yeah. I mean, it's it. Like, we do the podcast every week. I look at those washboard abs. So, Simon. Washboard abs. Top Gun Maverick, I was really debating whether it should make my list or not, and I didn't fill out my 10. But, like, when I reached Top Gun Maverick, I just kept on looking at it feeling that it's a film that I had a good time with at the cinema, but I just haven't cared about it since. Like, there's been nothing that's, like, motivated me to, like, feel that I need to see it again. And I might do it now that it's on Paramount next week. And, you know, I might give another look and watch it with my dad, maybe. But I don't know. Like, there's just something about it that's left me cold post-movie. So it's not necessarily an indictment on movie, but, you know, certainly my relationship to it. Let's move forward. Uh, number three on my list was Everything We Were All At Once. So what's your number three? My number three is the one that nobody will have heard of, but I want to sort of get ahead of the curfew. I went to the Adelaide Film Festival this year. Many people will remember a few years back there was a strange little montage film called Terra Nullius that took a whole lot of Australian iconic film moments and sort of used them to build a film story that sort of tore apart our national identity and land rights and our abuse of the Indigenous people, and it became this real sort of very funny but also very deep cut kind of bit of uh, montage slash documentary filmmaking. The people who made that, a uh, two women artists from Adelaide called Soda Jerk, they have a new film, uh, a feature-length film. Terra Nullius ran, I think, like 30-odd minutes. This one ran, runs 80 minutes. It's called Hollow Dankness, um, and it uses some... Um, uh, uh, mainstream American films and films from all over the world, quite frankly, to, to chronicle the rise of Trumpism, rise of um, red state madness, uh, rise of MAGA, um, and do it all with clips and intercut clips from different types of movies. It is one of the funniest films I have seen. Um, very quickly, my experience watching this film, it was shown at a gallery in South Australia, um, in Adelaide, and the plastic chairs were sort of put out so we could watch it on the the gallery screen. And I was giggling so hard at some of the stuff in this. The woman sitting in front of me turned around and started laughing at me for laughing so hard. Such was a connection we had watching this movie. Um, It's called Hollow Dankness. Uh, As we record this, it's just been announced that it's going to Berlin, um, which is a a huge coup for for Soda Jerk. Uh, And hopefully you'll probably see it sort of roll out through the Sydney and Melbourne film festivals this year um write the name down hello dankness because it is a brilliant bit of montage filmmaking and and very funny social satire to boot 
Okay, so as we reach our top two, I just want to run through our list so far. So All right. uh, number 10 for Simon was Don't Worry Darling, followed by She Said at number nine. Uh, number eight, he had Cha Cha Real Smooth. Uh, number eight for me was um, Significant Other. Uh, as we reached number seven, uh, I jumped in again with Banshees of Insurin. Uh, your number seven was? The Night of the Twelfth. Yeah, my number six, I had Don't Worry Darling. My number six was the Lynch Oz documentary. Uh, which really caught my attention, so I'm going to have to check that one out. Uh, number five, Barbarian. Number five, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Uh, number four for me was Kimmy. Number four for me was Top Gun. Uh, number three, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Number three for me was the Soda Jerk film Hello Dankness. Okay, which brings me to my number two. It's a little mm. film called The Batman. Fucking <laughs> God! Rithers to match. I can take care of myself. If this continues, it won't be long before you've nothing left. I don't care what happens to me. It's only gonna get worse for you. Ah, finally we get to us. Damn, I didn't know you'd seen this film. Do tell. So the ongoing joke with Simon and myself is that we've got a segment on our rundown that is called What Else Have You Been Watching? And for about, I don't know, four to five months every week, I just wrote in The Batman. Now, look, yeah. I haven't rewatched the film that many times. I have seen the film probably about like four or five times this year. Oh, my God. Yeah. Twice in the cinema and then just a couple of other times I've thrown it on. And I think the last time I didn't see it all the way through to the end, but I, you know, I know what happens. Uh, I look, think when we qualify, I think when we say that you didn't have time to watch 10 movies this year, you had time to watch the Batman five times. So that kind of counts. Well, yeah, but like it's different about going to the movies than to be able to watch like the Batman three times at home. Okay. I did manage to see it twice in the cinema, which was quite the effort. But also in this year in the cinema, I saw Uncharted. So really, how am I better yeah. spending my time? Like, come on, let's yeah, think exactly. about that. Yeah. Okay, so the Batman, look, I mean, I'm a big Batman guy. I've always enjoyed the Bat guy. But like, this is probably my second favorite take on the Batman in terms of realizing him on screen. Uh, whether my other favorite is Batman Returns or if it's The Dark Knight, I'm not sure. But those are the top three. But the Batman is always going to be number two on that list, and I don't know how to pass that entirely. But what I liked about the Batman was that, one, I think this is a very fresh take on the character that hasn't actually really been explored that like, like this in the comics as well. So the guy that co-wrote the Batman movie but didn't get a screen credit, as this guy, his name is, off the top of my head, it's like Matthew Tomlinson. Um, he also wrote a very similar take on the Batman for a miniseries comic that came out shortly afterwards. And that became just really apparent to me how fresh the take on the Batman had been, which is that he's an angry guy in his, you know, early to mid 20s who really is trying to find his way into not only who he is as a human being and just ignoring sort of that part of himself, but also like what even is he as the Batman? Like um, every other version of the Batman has been as soon as he puts on the cow, he's a fairly self-assured person and kind of feels that he's doing the right thing even though he may make a few mistakes along the way. But this one here, like he's putting that mask on and he's just embracing this sort of really dark, creepy guy, but doesn't even really know what that means and is sort of fighting to try to find that identity, even if he isn't actively thinking about the fact that he's searching for it, which to me, that's an interesting sort of take on the character. I really cool. liked in this one, there's this amazing scene at the beginning of the film, beginning-ish, uh, where the Batman is coming in to investigate a crime scene with Commissioner Gordon or the soon-to-be Commissioner Gordon. 
I can't remember where he's at. Uh, but like, as he walks into the room, suddenly there's just like all the other police officers who are just looking at this guy, like, who is this weird dude walking through wearing a bat costume? And just like the actual, like human downscale conception as to what it actually means to put on a stupid costume and go running around the night sort of fighting villains. And- and to be a vigilante, I think yeah. that was also the point of that opening scene is the police were like, hey, we can do the job. Get your vigilante bullshit out of here. Um, so there was also that tension, which was really interesting. I hadn't seen that being a fan of only the movies. I'm not a comic book reader of the Batman stories, but um, I found that really sort of compelling aspect of the film. But what was more interesting about that, I think, was rather because you're coming from it from a fairly altruistic sort of viewpoint of, you know, the police are like, what are you doing sort of taking our job by being a vigilante? But really what we're doing is seeing this in the context of Gotham, which has a serious history of police corruption. But then we're viewing this through the real world eyes of just coming straight afterwards, the all lives matter protests and the antipathy that a lot of people have towards police for the fact that, you know, they're maybe not quite as altruistic as they really should be at times. Um, Mm -hmm. Like all that's baked into those scenes and you're watching Mm -hmm. it and it's just a marvelous piece of filmmaking. Uh, but then yeah. you've just got other, like, realised scenes. Like, there's that scene with uh, Batman and his makeshift Batmobile thing chasing after the Colin Farrell making his second appearance on my list um, as the Penguin. And, like, you're just seeing, like, this sort of brutal um, contraption just, like, chasing after this car through the night. And, like, the sound production around that is just incredible. As yeah. a fully realised piece of cinema, okay, from both sort of script and thematic construction through to the actual production capability of this film like there is no bigger film this year except for my number one Mm. um and i think we should point to the fact that everybody sort of went when they cast robert pattinson as batman but the fact is he does a great job in the film he he the darkness and the complexity of, of who he is on screen at the moment worked exactly right for for him as bruce specifically bruce wayne but also as the batman absolutely yeah Okay, so that's good. I love the film. I had no problem with the film. Didn't quite make my top ten, but yeah, I think it's a as, as good a version of the Batman story as I've seen. So well done, uh, Matthew Reeves, wasn't the director? I think yeah, Matt Reeves. Did, yeah, did a great job. Okay, I'm going to cop a bit of flack for my number two because it was the most divisive. In fact, it wasn't even divisive. Pretty much everybody hated this film when it hit Netflix. It's called Blonde from Australian director Andrew Dominic. I guess I was discovered. I know you're supposed to get used to it. And we all lose our jobs in the end. But I just can't. This is his take on the Joyce Carol Oates novel, which uses Marilyn Monroe as a um, sort of conduit for exploring the abuse and the exploitation of young women and and, and starlets in Hollywood um, and how the most famous sex symbol, comedic actress, call it what you will, of her time um, was so thoroughly abused from from a young girl to her final days. Anna D'Armey in the in the lead role uh, gives the performance of her life. I had no trouble with the accent. A lot of a lot of critics focused in on the accent that she brought to the role, being a, a South American woman, but um, that didn't concern me at all. She was luminous on screen in the 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 moments of Marilyn's beauty, but also just heartbreaking on screen when she was in the in the sort of position of an actress being abused and and, uh, being exploited by the industry. Um, 
people didn't want to see their Marilyn portrayed in this way. They would rather believe the, um, you know, ongoing memory and ongoing adoration of her as something sort of dreamlike and something very, quote-unquote, Hollywood. I think this is sort of a version of Marilyn that she had every right to be um, a part of and, and would have wanted exposed in the end because she was an extraordinarily complex woman Um Detractors say that this only paints her as a victim, but I think it uses her to paint a picture of Hollywood that's as powerful as anything has been told about that part of the world. And it's, um, I just found it a breathtaking bit of cinema, um, really inventive. Yes, certainly dark and horrible in places, but that's part of the world as well. Real long haul at 167 minutes, but it showed that Andrew Dominique is a, a, an extraordinary director and came at this from a, a really sort of a incisive perspective so it's called blonde and it's still on netflix and i'm ready for the emails because a lot of people hated this film (laughs) yeah here's the thing if you're willing to go for the bullshit of putting blonde at number two on your list then i'm quite comfortable coming in number one right now with a small independent movie that's not independent there was a studio behind it that's just a bit of a silly joke but certainly a very small intimate film called avatar the way of water oh boy teach them our ways keep up forest boy if you want to live here, you have to ride. Let's do it. Just breathe. Breathe. Okay. Let's Here's go. the thing. I, like, my, <laughs> my list is fluid. There's probably a day where I'd put down everything everywhere all at once. My number one, the Batman would be always my number two, and then Avatar sure. at number three. Um, other weeks, like other days, I'd probably put Batman number one. But Avatar, yeah. as I'm thinking about it this morning, just the scale of movie making on this one. And I was, I, I know that both of us sort of differ on that in the middle section, but um, as someone who's sort of overwilling to look the l- career long problem of James Cameron with some very tinny dialogue and just being a little bit sort of too um, filmmaking on the sleeve. Like, I'm willing to look past that with him. The absolute scale and spectacle and the fact I got caught up in it all, the just progressive filmmaking taking place, not so much in terms of, you know, progressive in terms of themes or anything, but in terms of pushing the technology forward, that 3D is unlike anything else that I've seen ever on the screen. It's just so competent and so just breathtaking. Um even if I watched this in 2D, I think there was a lot, lot that was breathtaking. But even using the high frame rates, like, I don't know, there was just so much that was taking place that cinema became alive for me on the screen in a way that as much as I was attached to that Batman movie this year, which did a lot of very similar, technically competent things, it's just hard for me to look past it. Avatar is not saying that this was the best thing I saw on a screen this year. Like, it was just so immersive and so compelling for me. Yep, absolutely. And, and, Yes, like me, there'll be detractors who zero in on the the story and the dialogue as as uh, just too flawed to overlook. But you call I them detractors, I call them haters, Simon. <laughs> I am not. I am not going to argue with you at all about the look of the film. It is groundbreaking in every regard. So yeah, totally, totally support you on that for sure. Yeah. Okay, Simon, what's your number one of the year, please? Okay, my number one is a little bit self indulgent, but. It came out with a, uh, a a groundswell of support behind it, having been bumped from its theatrical release to the Disney Plus platform. Um, it is Dan Trachtenberg's retelling of the Predator story, Prey. I can't believe this is your number one. It is my number one. Um, this uh, 
fans of the, the the Predator series have been screaming out for a film that recaptures the uh, original sort of intensity and vision of of the John McTiernan and Schwarzenegger original um, in taking Prey back centuries to the time of the Great Plains existence of the Comanche tribe and casting young Amber Midthunder as the Comanche uh, female warrior who has to take on the Predator when he comes to Earth. Um, this is just the ballsiest, most brutal, uh, most compelling action thriller of the year. Um, I I do come to it with a slight advantage. I was one of the few sort of press people to see it on the big screen, sort of out at the Fox EQ, um, uh, sorry, Hoyt's EQ out at, at Fox Studios on their extreme screen. Thank you to Disney for putting on that screening for us. Um, I did watch it. This is the one film I watched a second time, I should point out, um, because I wanted to see on Disney Plus, the Comanche language version of the film, which was amazing to watch and and to see that coupled with the incredible effects work and the incredibly thunderous sound design of this. This was the best genre film of the year for me um, and also a, a terrific representation of Indigenous American culture within that genre setting. So, um there, there are films that didn't make my top 10, things like Sissy, the Australian horror film, and Smile. There's a lot of horror films this year that were terrific. Um, Barbarian, you mentioned previously, this Finnish film Hatching um, and, and Ty West's X. But for me, Prey was the the jolt that I needed in my cinema going this year and, and delivered it. So uh, there you go. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dodgy one to come in at number one, but I think genre films should be rewarded where they can, and, and Prey was a, a great movie-going experience for me. I saw this movie as Disney intended me to see it on their media screening site with the film Impossible to See Past My Name written in really big letters across the screen. Yeah, I remember you saying that that's not a good way to watch or this or any movie, quite frankly. So Yeah, I don't know. Honestly, I just found this film to be a little bit generic. I, I didn't really see there yeah. was any magic in there at all. Oh, I captured it, baby. There's a couple others I want to mention very briefly. The Selena Gomez documentary was very moving in my regard. A little Australian film called You Won't Be Alone, which was another horror film, a co-production with the UK and Serbia. It was a very cool sort of witch story. The New Zealand film Millie Lies Low was a dark and very sad tale wrapped up in a, in a comedy. Um, and a movie that's coming out in January that – January, I should say um, – that is getting a lot of Oscar buzz is Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. Uh, if it was a calendar release this year, I probably would have had it in my top 10, but it comes out in January, so do get along and see that. Okay. Simon, these have been our top 10 of 2022. It's been fun talking movies with you, Dan. It's always fun talking movies with you. Yeah. Frankly, I'm hoping that I've got more to offer next year, but we'll see how the calendar year goes for it. <laughs> All right, mate. Thank you. Happy New Year, everyone. Happy New Year. <laughs>